The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. All right, now that the ladies have finally finally descended from the throne room of God, a couple of announcements. Don't forget this Saturday, like everybody should have observed on the screen, the ladies' prayer luncheon at 10.30 in the morning at the West Falls, RSVP to uh, touch, let her know how many are going to be there. On Sunday, April the 2nd, at 2 a.m., we shift to daylight savings time, so everybody gets to spring forward and lose an hour of sleep. And then next week on Thursday night, April the 6th, there will be no no Bible class. I will be leaving on Wednesday to go to um, Preston City, Connecticut, for a New England Bible conference. On Also, mark your calendars. We're going to have our first... Family night, that means you can bring members of your family, children, grandchildren, friends, neighbors, anyone. And we'll have a, a showing of uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and discussion, worldview discussion as well, trying to work on developing uh, critical thinking skills. And... Uh, I was asked about an update on Tommy Ice. Tommy's doing a lot better. I've had some good discussions with him this week. He sounds great. Apparently, it was just an a an imbalance in his medication on the one hand, and on the other hand, his triglycerides were off the charts, so they put him on some medications to control that. But he's doing much better. April twenty second. It's a Saturday night. Okay. Anything else? Am I forgetting anything? Overlooking anything? All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at His Word. Lord, we thank You so much that we have You to come to in time of need. We thank You for the way You answer prayer. I'm especially grateful today as we prayed for um, Roanne and her health and her recovery from her surgery. That she, the last report, she's doing much better Father, we pray that you just comfort uh, her husband, the family. They might be uh, their faith and trust in you might be strengthened throughout this uh, this time of uh, testing. Father, we thank you for the way you have worked in our lives, the way you have brought us here tonight, that we might learn from your word, and that you would challenge us with the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. We are in an interesting section of Scripture. I've got to be honest, there, as a pastor, there are passages of Scripture you really look forward to teaching, and there are passages of Scripture that you look at and you say, Lord, I really want to get past these next three or four chapters. I'm not really sure uh, what's here. And this is one of those sections. Jacob and Laban are just not the most attractive people. They are connivers, swindlers, they're trying to outdo each other. And there are some interesting things that go on in the next few chapters. Chapter 29.1, which is when Jacob leaves the promised land, leaves Canaan, goes back to the homeland in Haran. 
through chapter 31 when he leaves to return to the promised land is what's known as the Jacob-Laban section, which uh, talks about this interaction back and forth between Jacob and Laban. And there are four observations I want to make as we get into this particular section. First of all, the Lord, who was a primary focus in chapter 28, is not in view in most of chapter 29 till you come to right at the end of the chapter in verse 31. He's, only, he's not mentioned again until verse 31. So the Lord's not, and His work is not out there in front as we come to these episodes. We simply read what Jacob is doing. Second observation is that the primary mention of the Lord in chapter 29 and again in chapter 30 has, uh, is restricted to his opening the womb or his uh, work in the pregnancies of Rachel and Leah. We don't see any new revelation, any new direct guidance. Uh, the only statements we read there is the Lord opened the womb of Leah, or the Lord opened the womb of Rachel. That's it. So the Lord is really in the, in the far background, behind the scenes of what's going on. We're simply watching the life of Jacob and his relationship to Laban and then his marriages and then what happens in those marriages. So it's a real uh, family dynamic situation where we're seeing the outworking of certain spiritual principles as opposed to a section that is uh, more uh, oriented to teaching certain uh, spiritual principles. So in some way we, we're, we're looking at uh, how God is working behind the scenes. Third observation is twice in this section Laban recognizes that he has been blessed in terms of his relationship with Jacob because of the Lord's blessing of Jacob. And that's it. So when the Lord is mentioned, he's mentioned in relation to opening the womb of Rachel and Leah. He's mentioned in terms of the source of blessing and uh, on Jacob, which uh, Laban received blessing by association. And it's not until... The end of chapter 31, this is a 20-year period of time between uh, chapter 28 when uh, uh, Jacob is in Bethel leaving the land and chapter 31 when he is returning to the land. 20 years goes by and God is silent. We, We don't really see him at all. He is merely referenced by two or three different people. So we see something going on in the background and in that way, there's some application for us because we live in an era of, of history when God is not working, as it were, directly or overtly. I want to develop that terminology a little later on this evening. Overtly in our lives in the way He did in the Old Testament. There is no special revelation. God is not giving new information or personal guidance through dreams and visions or as he did with the priests in Israel through the Urim and the Thummim, or through uh, speaking through prophets and giving special revelation. It is a time when God is testing us to see if we are willing to walk by faith in a completed canon of Scripture and to trust Him in terms of what He has revealed 
and understanding that he is still at work in human history and at work in our lives, but it is, it is a covert ministry as opposed to an overt ministry. And so we see some of the uh, implications of that, and we see this illustrated in these chapters. So we'll pull out some principles from that. So we st- I started off with these four observations related to the fact that God is in the background of the events of these chapters. Uh, nevertheless, we see that his hand is clearly guiding and directing what's going on in Jacob's life, and God is working out his purposes in a covert rather than an overt manner. So we can then make four conclusions on this passage. First of all, God is present with Jacob during these 20 years. That's what God promised when he appeared to Jacob in chapter 28. Back in 28.15, where he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to the land. That's the promise. Now, for the next 20 years, Jacob has nothing but that promise to rely on. There's no more visitation from God, no more direct revelation. In a sense, he is very similar during that period to the church-age believer trusting in a promise of God, waiting for God to bring about that which he has promised. So what we see during this period is this covert operation of God. So let me define these terms. I've already introduced them. Overt versus covert. This is something I've been been developing to try to teach divine guidance, teach some principles related to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and the life of the believer, leading of the Spirit, things of that nature. Some of this we've talked about in the Hebrew study on Thursday night. We'll talk about divine guidance a little more as we get into the Uh, details of chapters 29 through 31 because God is clearly guiding and directing but you don't see it it's all behind the scenes Jacob isn't aware of it until it's over with it's not like he's he's coming to Haran and he's saying okay God point out who my wife's going to be there's a lot of similarities between chapter 29 and chapter Uh, 23 of Genesis where Abraham sent his faithful servant to go back to the homeland to find a bride for Isaac. But if you notice, we go back and we do a comparison and contrast between these two events. When the faithful servant goes back to Haran, he is praying along the way for God to guide and direct him. And he's setting it up. But you don't see that with Jacob. It's, It's obviously absent from the text. It is noticeably absent from the text. He is just moving forward, and yet God is the one who works to bring Rachel to him. So we have these two terms I'm developing, overt and covert. What do I mean by overt? By overt, I mean an external operation of God that is open to view. It's readily observable, discernible, and clearly recognizable as the work of God in somebody's life. For example, we saw that brought out in the text in Genesis chapter 23 when the faithful servant prays that God would bring the the would indicate who the right woman was for Isaac because certain things would happen when he came to the well that she would 
water his camels and that she would uh, demonstrate certain uh, characteristics. We see God working in an overt manner many different times in history when he reveals himself uh, to people. And so we can say this is definitely the work of God or the scripture says it's definitely the work of God. But on the other hand, in many instances in Scripture, God works in a covert manner. And the word covert is a word that means concealed or veiled or secret. In other words, we know God works and He controls history. But He doesn't do it in an overt manner. He's not out there manipulating uh, human leaders. He's not revealing Himself externally to human leaders. He's not giving... Uh, external orders or direction to human leaders as to what they should do. He's working behind the scenes, working in and through the volition of human leaders. He controls the the thoughts, the heart of the king, Proverbs says, but he does it in a covert manner. So the, the important thing in making this distinction is we have to realize that God ultimately governs his creation And so we can always say that in some sense everything is the will of God and God was working, but we may not know it or perceive it at the time. We we may not come to a decision and God's going to turn a green light one way and a red light another way. But God is going to be working behind the scenes in various circumstances, people, and events so that the options that we have at at that point of decision-making, the options that we have, are there because God brought them there. In other words, if we come to a point and we say, golly, I wish I could do X, but X isn't a real option anymore. You only have option A and B. Well, that's because God was superintending the circumstances so that X isn't a a viable option, and the only choice we have is between A and B. But God isn't going to uh, tell us whether he wants us to do A or B. He's not going to give a green light. He's not going to... uh, make the Urim, or like the Urim and the Thummim, glowed or vibrated. God's not going to give a single vibration for yes and a double vibration for no. We don't have ongoing revelation of that type as we studied uh, Thursday night in uh, our study of Hebrews. God guides and directs in a completely covert manner. Afterward, as we go down the road a bit, we can look back and see how God superintended and manage the circumstances to bring about his will. But too often when we're in those circumstances, we don't know. Because part of the issue is, are we going to relax and just trust God and use the doctrine in our soul to make decisions? So we have this contrast between the way God works overtly and human and circumstances and guidance and decision-making and his covert work. Second conclusion... We see here is that God is working out the promises he's already made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob in reference to the Abrahamic covenant. He's promised Abraham uh, that the land, seed, and blessing. This is reconfirmed to, to Isaac and reconfirmed to Jacob at Bethel, where we saw in Genesis 28:13 through 15 that he promised him descendants like the uh, sands of the seashore, the dust of the earth, that they would be spread out upon the earth and that he would be a blessing to those around him. And that's exactly what happens in, in these next few chapters. 
despite his behavior, his conniving, all of the things that, that Jacob is doing, he still ends up being a blessing to Laban. And Laban finally is forced to recognize that, that no matter what's gone on between them as they've tried to outmaneuver each other and outconnive each other and get the better, uh, get the upper hand on each other, ultimately God works to bless Jacob, not because of who Jacob is or what he's done, has nothing to do with that because he's, for the most part, he isn't always obedient. God is blessing him because of the Abrahamic covenant and he's demonstrating his character of unconditional grace through Jacob to those around him. So God is fulfilling his promise to be with Jacob, to watch over him, to take care of him. He's fulfilling his promise to bless those around Jacob because of of his covenant with Jacob. And God is also working in Jacob's life in the same way he works in our life to teach us various spiritual truths to drive home these principles related to our spiritual life and to prepare him for the next stage. And the next stage is to return to Canaan where he is going to be in closer proximity to Esau where he has uh, to go to the next stage which is in relationship to his sons. And eventually, of course, there's the uh, Joseph narrative which takes them back to uh, takes them down to Egypt and so Jacob eventually is going to die down in down in Egypt but God is working at each stage to prepare him for the next stage and the same thing's happening in your life God is working certain circumstances right now to give you tests to use and apply doctrine to prepare you for future events and future tests and future circumstances and to prepare you for whatever areas of service or ministry he has for you in the future, in the next decade or long term to prepare us to uh, serve as, as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom. Third conclusion that we see from our initial observations is that there's no explicit doctrine taught in these chapters. You don't go to these chapters to learn about justification by faith alone. You don't don't go to these chapters to develop a theology of prayer. You don't go to these chapters to understand a covenant. You don't go to these chapters to develop any of these things. But what we see here is the is the outworking of God's providential management of not only human history but our individual lives as he moves us down that path of spiritual maturity. And as I've reflected on these chapters, there are two doctrines that are illustrated in this section that relate to God's work in the sanctification or spiritual life or spiritual growth of the believer. Two key doctrines come out. The first is divine discipline because there is an element of divine discipline in what happens to Jacob the conniver. He's the one who tried to manipulate the blessing of God by conniving uh, and and, uh, outmaneuvering his brother Esau. Rather than resting in God's provision, he outmaneuvers uh, Esau and he barters for the uh, blessing and sells him the mess of pottage rather than uh, the the lentil soup rather than uh, trusting in God. And the result is it created all this trauma in the family. Now what's going to happen? He's going to go back. He's going to become the victim of Laban's maneuvering. He's going to end up with the wrong sister because Laban's going to 
play bait and switch on him. One of the original bait and switch tactics in the Bible. And he's going to promise Rachel, but then on the wedding night, he is going to switch uh, women, switch sisters. And so Jacob's going to end up with not the one he's in love with. And so he's going to have to work another seven years. And that brings in another dimension here. And what happens? Now he's married to two women. There's conflict and competition in the family. Who's going to have the most children? Whose children are going to be the heirs? And all of this plays itself out in a very negative way in the history of the foundation of Israel. All because of the attempts to get God's way our way. And so there's some interesting lessons there. And so God has to discipline uh, Jacob, and he's going to reap what he sowed, just as he has sowed uh, this manipulative methodology. He's going to become the very victim of that same methodology, and he's going to reap the negative consequences from it. So it just shows God has a rather uh, macabre sense of humor, a little twisted sense of humor. He hits us right at our area of weakness, and it's only if you can sit back and and laugh at yourself a little bit that you can see how God uh, works right on our weaknesses in such a way that that we're off, we often have to go through the same testing that we put others through as God is taking us forward. Okay, let's look at a summary of the events in chapter 29. The first 14 verses, God leads Jacob to his family in Haran. Now, this leadership isn't overt. You don't see God doing anything. He's not... Uh, uh, overtly directing Jacob's steps. He doesn't tell Jacob, you need to go here, you need to find this well. When you get there, if you do this, then I will reveal your wife to you. There's none of this overt indication of what God is doing. He's working behind the scenes, but as we look at this through the vantage point of the writer, we see that God is in control of all of the circumstances and bringing about his desired end. It's up to Jacob, the believer in the middle of this circumstance, to apply doctrine and to pass the test. And God is teaching him certain things. Here's a map of the Middle East as it was at that time. And here we see the two locations for travel. Jacob leaves the land of Canaan, where his last night there is spent at Bethel, where he has the vision of the stairway to heaven, Jacob's ladder as it's usually uh, described, where God reconfirmed the covenant to him. He is on his way to the homeland of Abraham and Abraham's relatives in Padan, the area known as Padan Aram, part of uh, uh, Aramea, and the city of Haran, which is located up in the Red Circle. Uh, it's a distance of about 400 miles, and when he arrives, we discover uh, the circumstances that are very similar to those that uh, involved his father's the, the discovery of of his mother uh, to be the wife of his father. So he comes to Haran. Now, the first 14 verses, 
We see God leading Jacob to his family. We see these parallels with Genesis uh, 23, but there's certain contrasts as well. Jacob isn't praying for God's direction. Nevertheless, he's being led by God. It's very clear God is orchestrating this and that the parallels between the two chapters are uh, divinely established. We read in verse 1, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And it's uh, the phrase, went on his journey, is really a translation into English idiom. Literally, it means, uh, so Jacob lifted his feet. He li- and it, it's, a, it's an unusual idiom in the Hebrew, and it indicates a lightheartedness on his part that's the result of what's just happened at Bethel. God has promised him that he will protect him and comfort him, and so in the wake of his uh, of his confrontation with God or God's confrontation with him at Bethel, where he recognizes that God is behind him, God is working with him, he is, as it were, lighthearted now on facing this journey, and so he goes forward in anticipation of how God is going to uh, work in his life. And that's typical of many believers. At some point, we recognize that God really has a plan for our life and we're ready to go forward and we're full of enthusiasm and excitement, but the next day the car breaks down or we lose our job or there are other realities of life that enter in and we begin to wonder, well, maybe I just had a, quote, experience with God and uh, that's part of the test is are we going to trust God even in the difficulties of life? So Jacob isn't going to hit that right away, but it's definitely going to be a characteristic. And in these fourteen uh, first 14 verses, we see the introduction to the next seven years of his life. He approaches Haran, and he comes, and as he approaches, he comes to a well. Now, we're not sure if this is the same well that uh, Abraham's faithful servant came to, where he met Re- uh, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, but it might be. He comes to this well, and a well is a sign of blessing. It's a sign of prosperity. We're dealing with a very arid climate. So he comes to this well, and there are already three flocks of sheep that are there, and it's early in the afternoon. It's sort of first come, first serve, and as the earlier flocks get there, they, the earlier groups get there, they would wait until there was a uh, several flocks there before they would uncover the well. They don't want... It drying out, and then they would uh, go in order and take their flocks. So the first ones there would be the first ones to leave. And he thinks this is a rather silly uh, approach to it. There's a large stone that's on the wells that's covering the well, and all the, the, verse three tells us what the uh, operating procedure was. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would wait till they were all there. And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and then put the stone back in its place. So when he arrives, he says, well, my brethren, why are we, where, where are you from? And they said they're from Haran. So he then inquires, do they know his uncle Laban? Laban is Rebekah's brother. Do they know his uncle Laban, the son of Nahor? And they say, we know him. And he asks about his, uh, how, his circumstances. Is he well? They said he's well. And here comes his daughter. How about that? Just as he arrives, Rachel shows up. See, this is what I mean by the covert work of God. You don't see God out in front, but you know that God is the one working in the circumstances behind the scenes to work out the timing of this 
this situation. His daughter's Rachel's coming with the sheep. And he said, look, it's still high day. In other words, it's the middle of the day, early afternoon. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. In other words, it's not time to uncover the well. But uh, in verse 8 he says, But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. That's our procedure is to wait, which is a rather silly, inefficient way to do it. So he steps in, exercises some initiative, as Rachel comes up, and it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, in verse 10, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So he takes initiative. Now there's foreshadowing here. And the foreshadowing is is that over the next three chapters, it is going to be Jacob who is the source of blessing for Laban and for his flocks, for his sheep, and for their uh, their increase over the next 20 years. And so this foreshadows the fact that it is Jacob that's a source of prosperity for his flocks. And he's so thrilled with meeting J- uh, Rachel that he kisses her, and uh, he lifts his voice, he, he rejoices, and he weeps. And he tells Rachel who he is, that he's her cousin, and that he's Rebecca's son, then she runs and tells her father. Then in verses 13 and 14, we see Laban's reaction. And in verse 14, he says, he's, he's embraced him, he's kissed him, uh, and he says to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. What does that remind you of? Genesis chapter 2, when uh, Adam looks at Eve and says, She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You see a very close uh Welcome here. That they're glad to see each other. Families met family. Uh, there's a certain uh, endearment here that we don't see later on in the uh, Jacob Laban narrative. And so he invites him to stay with him for a month. And then in verse 15, we shift to the next section, which is where we begin to see how God is working in this circumstance to teach Jacob a lesson. And that's called divine discipline. So behind all of this, we see the guidance of God operating uh, covertly. But in this, he is going to bring some discipline into Jacob's spiritual life. In verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, because you're my relative, should you be here for nothing? No, I ought to pay you some wages. And so he uses this word. This is the Hebrew word, sakar meaning to hire or to pay wages. And there are various forms, cognates of this word used throughout these next three chapters so that this presents a core interpretive idea that, that Jacob, uh, excuse me, Laban offers to pay him wages. Then he's going to cheat him out of those wages. And ten times uh, Jacob is going to complain that his uh, father-in-law... Uh, changes his wages. But in the end, we're going to see that uh, Jacob is reaping, getting paid by God, what he has already sowed. So this is a uh, subtle way that the author of Scripture utilizes words like this to bring out uh, some of the main ideas. So Laban offers to pay him a wage. And Jacob, who has fallen head over heels in love with Rachel, says that he will take 
Rachel, the younger daughter, the beautiful daughter, as his wage. And so Laban says, oh, this sounds like a good deal. Maybe I can get seven years worth of work out of him. So he says, you work for her for seven years, and I will give you Rachel. But just as the seven years are up and it's time to get married, Laban then uh, outmaneuvers Jacob. And on the wedding night, he substitutes uh, Leah, the older sister, for the younger sister. And see, this is God's sense of humor, as it were. Because remember the prophecy at the time that uh, Rebecca was pregnant with the twins, that the younger would serve the older? Well, uh, Jacob had outmaneuvered, to, to bring that about, he had outmaneuvered his older brother, in order to bring it about. And now, this same older, younger rule is going to be brought into play. And he's going to be told, see, you can't have the younger one because you have to, the older one has to get married first. So God is using the same elements that were involved in Jacob's conniving Esau out of the birthright in order to bring about a a little turnabout is fair play on Jacob. So Jacob now wakes up and he doesn't have the wife that he had hoped to have. And Laban says, well, you need to work another seven years to have Rachel as your wife. So he says, okay. And he waits a week and then there's a second marriage, but he still has committed now to work for still another uh, seven years. This is an interesting insight into how God disciplines uh, a believer and teaches us to trust him to bring about his plan rather than trusting in our own manipulations and our own flesh in order to bring that about. So I want to go over a review of divine discipline as a background to understanding how God is working in the life of Jacob to teach him some spiritual discipline. First point, in life there are two categories of suffering. There's deserved and undeserved suffering. Everybody, believer or unbeliever, goes through both categories of suffering. We both go through deserved and undeserved suffering. Second point, undeserved suffering falls into two categories. Two categories for undeserved suffering. First category is suffering from self-induced misery. It's just the principle of reaping what we sow. We get the negative consequences of bad decisions. We go out and we get involved in whatever it is we do, we're irresponsible, we commit sins, whatever it is, we just have the natural consequences from those uh, bad decisions. The principle applies to both believer and unbeliever alike. If you break the law, you're going to go to jail. If you're dishonest and you get caught, you're going to reap the consequences. This happens for both believers and unbelievers. But then there's an additional deserved suffering that goes on top of that, And that's divine discipline. See, reaping what you're sowing isn't divine discipline. Now, God may utilize that in some way for divine discipline and limit that in particular cases out of grace rather than packing divine discipline on top of it. But suffering from self-induced misery or or reaping negative consequences from bad decisions can't be divine discipline because it's true for everybody. 
divine discipline, according to Hebrews 12, is God's family discipline on those who are members of the royal family. It flows out of his love, and it's designed for the purpose of producing uh, self-mastery, spiritual discipline, and uh, self-control in the life of the believer. So that's an additional category. It's not just reaping negative consequences from bad decisions. So suffering from divine discipline is a matter of spiritual training and is directed by a loving father to his children to bring them to spiritual maturity. So there's a difference between suffering from bad suffering normal consequences from bad decisions and divine discipline. Third point, divine discipline is deserved suffering in the life of the believer and it's designed by God to accomplish two things. It's designed to teach us, to instruct us so that we learn certain spiritual principles in the process and it is also designed for correction or remedial discipline. It's designed by God to either instruct or to remedy our sinful nature. So the first category is instructional discipline, and this is designed to instill spiritual self-control or self-mastery in the believer. Think about a drill sergeant. A drill sergeant has these raw recruits that come into the military, the Army, Marine Corps. I always like the image of those guys in a, a full metal jacket who went into uh, went to boot camp. And you have this drill sergeant, and his, what he's trying to instill in these men is discipline. There is along the way punitive uh, discipline, remedial or corrective punishment. But he is, design, he is trying to teach self-mastery, self-control to these recruits. And so a lot of divine discipline comes under the heading of simply instructional discipline. God is teaching us to control our sin nature, to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and he's teaching us how he's working in our life. On the other hand, when we are disobedient, when we live in extended carnality and we uh, are uh, operating on our own arrogance, God is going to remedy that through corrective discipline. This is designed to correct sinful behavior in thought, speech, and act. So when we're involved in personal sins, then God is going to bring discipline into our life. So there's two categories of suffering, deserved and undeserved. Undeserved suffering falls into two categories. It's either the natural consequences of our bad decisions or it's additional suffering that comes from God's plan of divine discipline. Uh, Divine discipline comes in two categories, either corrective discipline or instructional discipline. And then fourth, the goal of all discipline is to produce in the believer the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could think of the image of a sculptor who's given a block of granite and he somehow buried in that block of granite is the image of Jesus Christ. And so he's got to chip away all of the excess granite so that what is revealed is the image of Jesus Christ. And that is what the Lord is doing through uh, discipline. Romans 8:28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good. See, God is working all things together for good 
because the ultimate good that he is working toward is to produce spiritual maturity in our lives. So he takes all these circumstances and he's working behind the scenes covertly so that all of these details in our life converge to produce in us the image of Christ. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, that is our destiny, is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that our character reflects his character. That's described in Galatians 5.22-24 is the fruit of the Spirit. It's character. That God is producing character. He's producing virtue in our lives so that we reflect the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. As such, God is the master craftsman because he knows exactly what our weaknesses are. He knows your sin nature and my sin nature better than we know our own sin natures. He knows those lust patterns. He knows your trends. He knows your area of weakness so well. And he knows just exactly what uh, button to push, as it were, in your soul that that reveals those trends of carnality and teaches you and me to turn to the Lord and trust Him and apply doctrine. It's interesting. We, you watch different people in their life, and you'll see some people, and they seem to always go through uh, financial problems. No matter what happens, it's always a financial test. You look at somebody else, and no matter what happens, it's a relationship test. It's a relationship with their boss. It's a relationship with their spouse. It's a relationship with their kids. But it always seems to be people testing. You look at somebody else, and they just seem to go through one health test after another. And what God is doing is he recognizes that whatever the dynamics are in the soul and the sin nature of each one of us, that it is a health test that really brings us to, to our knees where we have to trust him because that's the area where we're our weakest. Or he's looking at some in its finances. We just ha- we, we're, we want to be self-sufficient. It's always about money. We're looking to money for security, so God's always bringing uh, financial tests into the life, whatever the, it, may, it may be. And these areas may shift from decade to decade as we proceed to spiritual maturity because if we're growing and we're passing the test and we get past one stage, then all of a sudden we find ourselves in the next stage. And so God is specifically designing these tests and these circumstances because that's exactly where we are at our weakest and need to learn that He is uh, at his strongest. This is why uh, God sent the the uh, thorn in the flesh demon, the messenger from Satan, the angelos or messenger angel from from demon, to Paul in Second uh, Corinthians chapter ten, is so that Paul would learn that his uh, that God's strength was perfected or matured or brought to completion in his weakness. It's right at that point where we are our weakest that we need to learn to trust God and not in our own uh, resources. So the goal is to be conformed to the image of his son and God knows exactly what to do in order to produce those changes. Point five. All divine discipline then is based on love. It's based on God's love. It's not based on the fact that God hates us. 
that God's mad at us, that God is uh, getting even with us because we were disobedient in this particular area. But God provides the definition of a loving father. Now, I understand that some people think that that's a very difficult concept to understand because they've never seen a loving father. They've had an abusive father. They've had abusive parents. They've had self-serving parents, whatever it may be. And if that's the case, and, and I understand that that's true for some people, you have to get past whatever the failures were within your human environment to realize that that God provides the ultimate model for what a loving parent is. And a loving parent is one that is going to instill discipline and standards into his children, but he's going to do it in a right way. It's not out of selfishness. It's not out of anger. It's not out of frustration. Hebrews 12.6 states, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That carries over to parents, parents who don't discipline their children, who don't instill uh, self-discipline and self-mastery into their children, don't love their children. I don't care how you feel about them. I don't care how many Christmas presents you give them. I don't care how nice you are to them. If you're not willing to instill discipline in your children to train them to be adults, then you don't love your children. That is the purpose of parenting. The purpose of a parent is to train their children to be productive Adults, And that means that you have to come to understand them and the strengths and weaknesses of their sin nature. You have to be students of those children. And it ought to be fairly easy because if they're your offspring, they probably have the similar trends to your sin nature. And so that's why sometimes you have a little rivalry between parents and children because they're too much alike because they have the same trends and weaknesses of the sin nature. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now let's look at a couple of the words that are used here in Greek because they help us understand the concept here. The discipline here isn't that's talked about in the first stanza, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, isn't necessarily the retributive kind of discipline in the first stanza. It is in the second stanza. The first stanza uses the Greek word paiduo, which has the idea of training and discipline. It's the idea of teaching and training children to have self-discipline, self-mastery, and to do that which is right because it's the right thing to do. I remember when I was a kid, I've told this story before, uh, my dad had a K-bar knife that was his uh, Marine Corps knife when he was on uh, when he was in the Marine Corps, when he was on Iwo Jima. I love that knife. And he said, well, you can have it if you, back in those days, uh, HISD had a list of different character qualities. You'd get a check, plus or minus. And one of those was self-discipline. He said, if you can get a plus in self-discipline uh, two six-week periods in a row, then you will, then I'll give this to you. Well, that was a little more than the system could handle. And, um, in fact, later on, I got to know my sixth grade teacher real well. And she said, she said, I never could give you a plus in, in self-discipline because I always knew that you and your friend were always talking. I could never catch you. But I knew it. <laughs> and so I could never give you a plus. Well, I had to wait till I was in junior high. when it, when I think when you were in elementary school, everybody started with a minus and they had to work their way up. And when you got to junior high, it was everybody started with an E for excellent in conduct, and they had to 
make mistakes. They had to do things in order to, to lose credit and drop down. So I had to wait till I was in the seventh grade before I got that K-bar. But he was teaching me the importance and the value of self-discipline and self-mastery. He did the same thing with money. He would all, all my friends got allowances. My dad would say, no, you're not ever going to get anything for nothing. I'm not going to give you a dime unless you work for it and you earn it. So you're going to make your bed, you're going to clean your room, you're going to cut the grass, but you're going to either be given something out of pure grace or you're going to work for it and earn it to learn uh, the value of money and personal responsibility. That's discipline. And that's what parents need to do is to teach that to their children. So that's what's happening in this first verse, the first stanza. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's positive training for obedience. And then the second stanza is a contrast. And he scourges every son whom he receives. And the Greek word there is the verb mastigao, which means to whip or to flog or to scourge. And it is used in Luke 18.33 and John 19.1 to describe the whipping that the Lord Jesus Christ received before he went to the cross. So this is a harsh word for, uh, for retributive discipline, for punishment, for the negative side of di- discipline, chastisement. And the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich uh, Greek lexicon says that this word means to beat with a whip or a lash, to flog, to scourge, to punish with discipline in mind. So this is an enforcement of certain negative consequences on a child in order to reinforce the whatever other negative consequences there might be. For example, in the old days, when many of us were children... If we got in trouble at school, when we came home, we got in even more trouble. That's sort of like the difference between uh, the natural consequences for bad decisions and divine discipline. When you got in trouble at school, that'd be the natural consequences. But then when you got home, your parents piled it on. They don't do that anymore. They haven't done that since the 70s when I was teaching school. Parents would you discipline the kids at school and the parents come down. And uh, they take the child's case and go to the administration and say, "Why did you, uh, why did you punish my perfect little child?" And it, the par- parents can't ever do that. That's one way to destroy the character of your of your children. I could never get in in uh, trouble at school when I was in high school, which just taught me to be sneaky. It's not wrong if you don't get caught, right? Because the assistant principal who was in charge of all discipline was married to my mother's best friend who had been her roommate in college, which meant that I would really get in trouble. I would get in, in trouble from him, and he had permission from my parents to you know, just do whatever he wanted to do. So I would not only get in, in trouble officially, but he would just take it out on me, and then when I got home, life would be over with. So I had to just learn to be sneaky and to get away with it. So all divine discipline is based on love. The goal is something positive. The goal is to produce in the believer the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and to, to instill self-mastery. Now, point number six, every believer has arrogant skills. We're experts at this. We start learning how to utilize those arrogant skills from the time we're, we're 
six months old. We learn to manipulate the environment around us, and everything's all about our little world. Every time you see a little baby, it's all about their little world and what makes them feel better. As they develop those arrogant skills, or sin nature trends develop, less patterns develop, and all of this has to be controlled by the believer, not just in the power of the flesh, because anybody can exercise a certain amount of self-discipline in the flesh, but it has to come from a supernatural self-discipline from the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-mastery. And so as you grow and mature as a believer, self-discipline is developed, which is a control of the trends and the lusts of the sin nature. That can only come about through the work of the Holy Spirit and is one form of divine discipline. Now, divine discipline, as we see from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, is means that sin is not the issue at salvation. Sin isn't the issue at salvation. It is the issue after salvation. Personal sin in the life of the believer is dealt with by the Lord as a family matter. It's not a matter of getting into the family because Jesus Christ already paid the penalty for all sins on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. This is a key verse to help us understand the dynamics of salvation. Christ suffered once for sins. And the word translated for there is a Greek preposition, peri, which indicates once concerning sin, with once with reference to sin. But then the next phrase, we have that same English word for, but it's a different word in the Greek, the just for the unjust. And there we have the Greek preposition huper plus the genitive indicating substitution. The just in the place of or as a substitute for the unjust. And the word there for just is the Greek word dikaios. And the unjust is the Greek word ah dikaios. The ah in Greek, that alpha at the beginning is like a un in, in English. It negates the noun. So it is actually translated the just, that is the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the unrighteous. Because that is our core problem, is unrighteousness. The issue, therefore, is not what sins we've committed, because the sins are paid for on the cross. Christ died, apothenesco, it doesn't say for he suffered for sins, he died once for sins. He paid the sin penalty on the cross, so that's not the issue. The issue has to do with that next clause, which is righteousness. We're all born with relative righteousness, but in order to have a relationship with God, there has to be perfect righteousness. So sin isn't the issue in salvation. The issue is understanding that we must have perfect righteousness and we must have spiritual life in order to have a relationship with God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, that all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. No matter how good we are, we can't measure up to the perfect righteous standard of God. On the other hand, Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ paid the penalty for sins, but we still have two other problems. We have negative righteousness, and we're dead in our sins. So there has to be an imputation of perfect righteousness, and there has to be regeneration for us to have eternal life. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Galatians 2.16 Because we know that a man 
is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. We're only justified by faith in Christ. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. At that instant, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when he sees that possession of that perfect righteousness, he declares us to be justified. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, Yes, indeed, I count all things lost. That is all my human righteousness. All things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as manure that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the point. Not having my own righteousness, which is like filthy rags, dung, manure in the previous verse, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Notice the contrast. It's not from the source of the law. It's through or by means of faith in Christ. It is righteousness which is from the source of God by means of faith. God gives us that righteousness. So what must a person do to be saved? Well, put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the issue that we see in verses such as John 3.16, John 3.18, and a number of other verses. That, G, that we are to simply believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins. Now, a little controversy has developed lately. You know, I've got one minute left to cover one of the main things I wanted to cover, but I'm going to cover it anyway. When we had the recent pastor's conference, one of the papers that was delivered by uh, Dr. Nimolo, who's a professor of Greek at at Schaefer Seminary, had to do with the essence of the gospel presentation. And see, this is one of the things that happens in scholarly environments as you investigate and talk about all kinds of different issues. And that's inherent to any seminary environment, trying to more clearly understand the Scripture. So, uh, it, within the framework of academic freedom, you have to let professors uh, go down various uh, various trails and investigate various things as long as they stay within the boundaries of the doctrinal statement of the school. Now, in recent years, and I really wasn't as aware of this as I had been, as I am now, but over the last really 15 to 20 years, a controversy has developed between within the, quote, free grace gospel camp. Now, we all know that there's been a controversy brewing for years between those who hold to a free grace gospel on the one hand and lordship salvation on the other hand. But within the free grace group, uh, as really exemplified and spearheaded by an organization called the Grace Evangelical Society, founded by Zane Hodges, who was my Greek professor at Dallas Seminary, uh, Bob Wilkin, who was uh, has his Ph.D. from Dallas, and I think we were classmates, or we overlapped at different times. They've done a tremendous amount of work in helping to clarify the issues on the gospel versus lordship. But within the GES, the Grace Evangelical Society, uh, Prof. Hodges and Bob Wilkin and some others have emphasized the fact, and began to emphasize over the last few years, that when you understand the gospel... There must be implicit within that, and some people state it a little more strongly, a sense of assurance of salvation or eternal security. So the question has been developing, what is part of the core gospel message? Is it necessary to have an explicit or even an implicit understanding of eternal life 
an assurance of salvation or eternal security. What Dr. Niemöller was arguing was that there has to be at least an implicit, there's the uh, key word, an implicit understanding of eternal life. Now, trying to understand exactly what he means by that, it's not an, he's not adding anything to, to the gospel that you have to believe in eternal life. Now, there are a few men in the, in the free grace camp who have gone that far. They have argued that you have to believe in eternal security or you're not saved. I would disagree with that, and John would disagree with that as well. Although I'm not, I don't fully agree with what everything that John has said. I think it's still within the framework of the doctrinal statement at Schaefer Seminary. He's not adding anything to it. The key word is his idea: implicit. Some people have said, "Well, how clearly does a three-year-old or four-year-old understand that he's getting eternal life?" Well, not very clearly, uh, but he can understand to some degree something about spending forever with Jesus. That's implicit. J- John would agree with that, that that is an implicit understanding, that we you believe in Jesus to save you from something, from the penalty of death, that implies you're getting life, right? So it's an implicit understanding. That's that, that's that key word that is being used there. Uh, I would, I take it a little broader sense. I think if we just trust Christ died for our sins, that's enough. And sometimes you don't even have to articulate it very clearly because God is, God is omniscient and omnipotent. He knows what is going on inside the human soul. I will stand up here in the pulpit as your pastor forever and say the gospel means to trust Christ as your Savior. It doesn't mean to commit yourself to Jesus or to invite Jesus into your heart. Uh, Revelation 3.20 is not a salvation verse. It doesn't even mention the heart in Revelation 3.20. I don't know where this awful ter- terminology comes from. But I also recognize that in the confused, muddled way in which the gospel is presented to a lot of folks, that there's a lot of folks who are praying for Jesus to come into their life or to come into their heart, and what's going on at the core of their soul is they're trusting Christ for Savior. They just don't know how to articulate it very well because of some confused evangelist. But God, who looks on the heart and knows what somebody's trusting, is going to save them because they're, as, just as John uses the example in John chapter 3, just as those Israelites just looked at that bronze serpent and they were healed instantly. They didn't have to understand how it happened, what the dynamics were, how bronze was made. What They didn't have to understand anything about uh, herpetology or anything else. They just knew that if they looked, they were going to be healed, and that was it. I think that a lot of people look at the cross, and they look at Christ for salvation, and that's it. That's enough. They don't have to understand anything more than that. They may articulate it poorly, but what's going on in the eyes of their soul is they're looking to the cross for deliverance. And that may be as far as it goes at that point, but at that instant uh, they're saved. But anyway, I just thought it was important for you to understand that there's a background to what was going on there, and there's a lot of discussion that's going on among uh uh, scholars and academicians, and there's a refining process that takes place as men go through this. I remember back in the 80s when this whole issue with Lordship Salvation was first becoming clear, uh, there were a lot of different uh, statements that were made in the process of working through to a more clear and precise 
understanding of uh, different passages in Scripture and the uh, free grace offer of the gospel. So there has to be a demonstration of grace orientation to people going through, and scholars, academicians, seminary professors, as they go through this process. Uh, the position that Dr. Nimala uh, presented at the conference is not the official position of Chafer Seminary. But it is, I think, acceptable within the doctrinal statement of the seminary. So I had not addressed that since the conference. Several questions have been raised. Some people have reacted strongly and thought it was pure heresy. Now, I don't think what he, from what he said, what he wrote in his paper, he's not outside the bounds. He's not saying you have to add anything. Others have. Uh, he may have articulated that way earlier, but he's not now. So... Uh, that's acceptable, but there has to be, uh, as I said, these, as long as you keep it within the bounds of the doctrinal statement, then there's not a problem. All right, let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that you reveal to us how you work behind the scenes, how you're working to produce maturity in our lives, uh, how your guidance is worked out, even though we're not overtly aware of the way you are uh, developing things and circumstances in our life. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.